Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and this is the podcast specifically for engineers who want to succeed in work and life. All right, today we are on the road together. So you'll probably hear a little background noise because I am standing in front of Mount Rushmore in Keystone, South Dakota. I've got a real interesting episode for you today. I'm going to talk with one of the rangers here at the park about the construction of this amazing monument about the construction, how they, believe it or not, nobody, 400 workers in 14 years, nobody died. We're going to get into the safety and how they made it safe. We're going to talk about the magnitude of it and how they actually constructed this monument, how they put the points and the detail on here. Not only going to speak to a park ranger, but you're also going to hear from Lou Del Bianco, who just published a book called Out of Rushmore Shadow, rushmorebook.com. Lou's grandfather, Luigi Del Bianco, was just officially named Chief Carver of Mount Rushmore, and I'm actually here for that ceremony. You may have already seen him on CBS Sunday morning. Well, we're going to talk with him at the mountain here. So this is going to be an exciting, a little bit of a different episode. Before we get into our civil engineering conversation here with these really interesting people, I want to take a moment to recognize our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. I have some exciting news. PPI, our exclusive exam prep podcast sponsor, is giving away $100 Amazon gift cards every month to my listeners. For more information on how to qualify, make sure to listen to my announcement later on in this episode. I also want to take a minute to tell you about a new program we'll be launching in early October called the Engineering Management Accelerator. This is a five-week intensive online program open to 30 engineers who will go through a series of skill-building courses aimed at helping them go from engineer to manager and beyond. But wait, here's the kicker. This is not just any old online course. At the beginning of the course, you'll be paired up with a small group of the other top-performing engineers, and you'll be given a major management problem or project. You'll also be given a form online where you can collaborate with your group and a coach. Over the five weeks, using the course material, the coaching, and your team members, you will present a solution to the problem at the end of the course. And after the course, you will present the solution to your colleagues in your company as a lunchtime presentation. And I'm telling you right now, engineers are already getting reimbursed for this. And you can go to engineertomanager.com to check it out. There's a video there. You could share it with your HR manager. He or she can watch the video and get a PDF that you can give them to seek approval for this program. All right, so now it's time to jump into this episode here at Mount Rushmore. Enjoy it. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, so for this episode, I'm actually here at the Mount Rushmore National Memorial, which is just a beautiful place to be. And I'm here with Maureen McGee Ballinger. Maureen, tell us a little bit about your role here at the park. Hi, thank you for letting me come out on your blog, your show. I am the Chief of Interpretation here at Mount Rushmore. I'm also the Park Public Information Officer. Our audience here, of course, is civil engineering professionals, and this is obviously an amazing work of construction and labor. Uh, It's unbelievable. We're going to put some photos and stuff into this episode, but talk us back about how this happened at all, before it was even just a mountain. Where was the idea? Where did it come from? Well, we can go back even further than that. 
In the late 1800s, about 1888, 1889, there was a lawyer traveling through this area who had been working with the miners, helping with the legal paperwork. And as he traveled through, he pointed to this big mountain and he said, what's the name of that? And the guy with him said, well, we'll just call it Rushmore after you. The lawyer was from New York City. His name was Charles Rushmore. So that's how Rushmore got its name long before there was ever any kind of carving that went on. In 1925, the state historian, and his name was Doan Robinson, Robinson loved his state of South Dakota, and he loved the Black Hills. So what he wanted to do was attract people into the Black Hills, and he wanted to attract them into his home state, South Dakota. So Robinson came up with this idea that they would carve spires. Custer State Park has these granite spires, and the granite spires, he thought, I'll have somebody carve them in the round, like statues. Sure. And you'll have all these statues of Fremont and Lewis and Clark and Red Chief Red Cloud. And so that was his concept. It was the state historian came up with the concept. It wasn't until he hired Guts and Borglum, artist, that it became the spot that we know as Mount Rushmore. Borglum looked at the spires. He said, not sustainable rock, not a great idea to carve those. But he found this other big piece of granite. He said, that's where we should carve. So now Borglum was tasked with kind of designing this monument, correct? Figuring out how it was yes. going to be done? Correct. Okay. Being that the audience is, you know, we're engineers, we're interested in projects and project budgets and management and things like that. <laughs> so let's talk about how do you even budget for something like this? Yeah, money is a big question when it comes to anything. Robinson said, we'll get donations. People from all over the state will donate. Maybe the state government will help out a little bit, and that'll work. Borglum very quickly knew state donations, even donations from outside the state, that wasn't going to be enough. So Borglum was the one that was really pushing the federal government to get involved, that you need federal funds to do something this big. And from what I understand, there was around $250,000 funded for the project but it ended up taking close to a million dollars. That's that correct. Accurate? It was almost a million dollars, yes. And did they end up getting a lot of that from the federal government? The vast majority came from the federal government. Okay. And how did that affect the project? Did it, I know at times it was, Borglum struggled to get the funding off him. It's very true. Borglum was a big picture, big thinker kind of guy. He knew he needed money, but he didn't always make those special plans for money. So he would run out of money, and then he would apply to Senator Norbeck or Representative William Williamson, both from the state of South Dakota, and they went to Washington pushing this for the financial support. And frequently, there would be times when the workers were not getting paid. If you can imagine not being paid for a year of your work... To do a job like this on the side of a mountain. And you're hanging off the side of a mountain, somebody's get you down on a little wire winch and... You got a 60-pound jackhammer in your hand. Right. But these guys did it. And you have to remember, too, the carving started in 1927. So you're talking about just prior to and then going right into the Depression. Right. And when you're pulling out of the Depression, then you're going into the Dust Bowl. If you have a job, you're going to try and stick with it as much as you can because it's an income. Right. Of course, sometimes... Even, even if it's always not income. <laughs> yeah, sometimes gonna, the money wasn't coming you're in. You're hoping but, it's going to come back because it's yeah. really all you have. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And these, a lot of these guys were miners. They had been working in the mines in the area, mm -hmm. and a lot of the mines had kind of stopped producing. So they were looking for whatever they could look for. 
So let's talk about the project itself. How many workers were involved and about how long did the project take for completion? When you're talking about the first little bit of rock being chiseled, that's 1927. Okay. Completion, 1941. Okay. So October 3rd of 1927 is considered the first day of carving, and October 31st, 1941 is considered the last day of carving. To our knowledge, there were approximately 400 workers. Of course, not all at once. Right. You know, there were some days when there was almost no money, and there might only be four or five people up there. There sure. were other days you could have 25 people up there. So that did vary, and... Some people worked almost the entire 14 years. Some people, well, frankly, some people went up one day, didn't like the heights, and never came back. Never came back. Now, did they, when Borgrum started this project, did he have any idea how long it would take? Did he have a schedule, or did they have a goal? Let's put it that way. Borgrum's goal was the piece of art. It wasn't, I'm going to be done by 1950. Okay. It, it was his design. And originally, his design was three presidents. So it was going to be Washington... Jefferson and Lincoln. And as you're looking at the sculpture, Washington was going to be in the center, Jefferson would have been on the left, and Lincoln on the right. And then far away from Lincoln, on the far right-hand side, was going to be an entablature in the shape of the Louisiana Purchase, and written on the Louisiana Purchase was going to be the first 150 years U.S. history, the significant facts. Oh my goodness. Now can you imagine what happened? Now let's talk about that. They ran into problems with the stone. Any engineer knows that when you get involved in a project of any sort, things happen. They don't always go as planned. And in this case, there was major things had to be changed. Just talk about the stone itself and what they encountered. The stone itself, the majority of it, is Harney granite. Harney granite is really fine-grained, very, very old rock. But the key is that fine-grained. So when you're carving it, while it's difficult to carve, it's going to be very, very stable. You're not going to carve it and a piece will just break off. Sure as long as you're with the Harney granite. There are inclusions, you have quartz inclusions, there's mica schist, and that's when you start getting into trouble. So Borgham saw this nice big piece of granite. He knew he was gonna have to take stuff off the front just to get to the good rock behind it. But as he started doing that, remember it was gonna be three presidents? Yes. Well, when he starts on Jefferson on Washington's left, he gets Jefferson just sort of an egg-shaped face, and they realize that rock is no good. They have to blast off all the work they've done to that point, move Jefferson over to Washington's right, move Lincoln over to where the entablature is, because that rock was prepared, and now you got a gap, and that's how Teddy Roosevelt comes in. It's amazing, because when you think about it from a civil engineering perspective, you know, you deal with a bridge, or you deal with a road, and you can make a change, you can change things around, but in this situation, mistakes are you can't really, like, it's not recoverable, right, Maureen? I mean, you have to, blast, like you said, they had yeah. to blast it off blast the mountain and then they had to start over in a yeah. new place. And the thing about it is you have men that are 500 feet in the air yes. hanging yes. doing this. So if you think that, you know, some of your roadway projects are challenging, you could imagine that. So they encountered problems with the stones. They had to redesign it several times, yes. I understand. Yes, nine significant redesigns. Nine significant redesigns over this 13-year span. Yeah, 14-year carving. 14-year yeah. carving span. Budgets, we know, is a challenge like any project. Here's the one thing that fascinates me about this project is that none of the workers were killed during the Correct. carving, which I find to be absolutely fascinating. I've seen a lot of the video footage, a lot of the photos. It was obviously it was safe, and we'll get into that in a minute, but it just looks on. I mean, they're in these crates. They're hanging <laughs> yes. in the air. They're on the side of a mountain. And if you would have asked me, I would have said, I'm sure that a lot of people died. There was fatalities in carving it, and I've come to learn that there's been none. How did they implement any kind of safety procedures on the side of a mountain? 
had some boardroom. He really was very safety-minded. Okay. So he had these, he called them bosun's chairs, and it was a piece of metal that you're sitting on and a strap of leather around the front of you and a strap of leather around the back of you, and then wires that went up to a winch. Borglum claimed that you could flip over in a bosun's chair and not fall out. Wow. Now, I, there's no way no, I would do that. No one wanted to try I, that. I wouldn't sure. try that. But we did have one time, though, twice a day they would blast on the mountain. They would blast just for lunch, and then they'd blast again just at the end of the day. So during the day, they're carving the, drilling the holes. Sure. Then they put the dynamite in and do their blasting. Well, it was one afternoon, and we're kind of known to get thunderstorms in the afternoon. And the guy was up there putting dynamite in the blast holes, getting ready for the blast. Thunderstorm hit the side of the mountain, set off some of the dynamite. Now, this guy oh was in a bosun's chair, and it blew him away from the sculpture and then back into it, and he was okay. That chair must have been so much they, more stable than it looks. So they put a lot of effort into these chairs. They did, and, and Borglum really was very, very safety conscious. The Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, was here at the time. They built, using the ponderosa pines in the area, stairs to get up to the top. So the guys every morning would climb 700 steps to get to the top. Pay would start when you got to the top. Pay would stop when you left. But that was just one more thing. The men didn't have to struggle to get up there. It was a staircase. Right. That was another safety issue. Another safety issue when you're up there and you've got all these tools and you're using tool bits. The average was 400 drill bits a day that they were going through that would be broken or have wow. to be sharpened. So they made a cart. And the cart had a line that was strung from the bottom of the blacksmith shop all the way up to the top to Lincoln's head. And they would put these tools in the cart so the guys wouldn't have to carry the tools up and down the stairs. So it made things faster, but it also made it safer. So they had to, yeah, you don't even think about that, of how much sharpening they needed to do with these tools because of the stone and how hard the stone was and how difficult it was to carve. All right, so let's talk about the actual procedure of getting these faces onto the mountain, the pointing, which is called pointing, right? Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Because it's fascinating. The pointing system is a very, very old system. It had been used long, long ago by the Greeks. And it basically involves two sculptures. You make a model. In this case, Borglum made a model that was a 1 12th scale. So every inch on his model became a foot on the sculpture. To translate that, to make that one inch become a foot, you have to have a pointing system both on the model and the sculpture. Pointing looks kind of like a protractor on the top of the head, a circular metal disc that has numbers on it. There's a metal pole that comes out from that, and that pole is what you're going to set on the particular numbers. At the end of that pole, there is a plumb bob. And the plumb bob, you measure how far down the plumb bob goes. You also measure how far the plumb bob is from the sculpture. So you've got at least three different measurements. Ah. You have three different measurements down below on your model. You take it up top, and you have a much larger protractor up right. there and plumb bob, and you translate it up top. That was the general pointing system. Did a tremendous amount of work for them, but Borglum was also known to go up in the morning with a can of red paint and paint on the sculpture, take an inch off here, take a foot off here. Oh, like fine-tuning? Fine yeah, so they, they had kind of their rules for the day. I'm going to include some photos of the pointing process on the page associated with this podcast, and we'll email it out to all of our newsletter subscribers because you, you kind of have to see it. You can see the three points. It's fascinating because if you look at the mountain, I never realized, I mean, I, I think most people don't really think about the details of how you would get these faces and details on the mountain, but I think as engineers, we would think of it. And I didn't even think of having a, a smaller model and how they enlarge it. So it's really amazing. It's an amazing project. You should come out here to South Dakota and visit and just... Hopefully it's not a foggy day like it is today. 
but we're hoping the fog is going to lift soon. We're going to get to see it, and um, it's amazing. I do think that the fact that there was no one died during the carving of this project is really an amazing engineering feat. And no OSHA regulations to follow. You were all on your own. Right, you were all on your own, and these seats... Were these seats something do you think that existed, or did Borden design them for this project? They had existed, but he kind of adapted them to the project. He also had some scaffolding that some people would be on scaffolding, but it was the people that were in the seats that were lowered over the heads that, that I think had kind of the most precarious position. Now, what did they do with all the rock that they blasted? Most of the rock that they blasted is right below the sculpture today. Borgum's original idea is that when the sculpture was completed, that rock would be removed. Borglum died in March of 1941, and his son Lincoln continued the sculpture and finished it in October of 1941. So it is as Borglum had it, although there could have been a few adjustments, and one of those adjustments might have been cleaning out that rock down below. We leave it today because it tells the history of blasting. So if anybody goes out and walks the presidential trail, you can see the big boulders with one drill mark, so you know that was one of the first ones blown off. They're blown off three feet. And then you'll see... Smaller boulders with multiple drill marks, you know those were the ones that were right near the face where they were hunter honeycombing, putting the drilling very close so they could get some of the fine-tuning before the final finishing. And if someone does come here to the park, what are some other things that are here? There's the theater, there's some other... Definitely, if you have the time, give yourself at least two hours. Go to the sculptor studio. It's the original studio that Borkholm had. And you can see that 112th model. The original Hmm. model is there. And it's pretty amazing to see his concept, which is actually not just heads. It was about three quarters of the body. But guess what? They ran into bad rock. This happens on projects all the time. Things change and you have to adjust on the fly. I think we know that well as civil engineers. So you can visit the sculpture studio as as part of the park. And this is, I mean, it's it's like, what, $10 to come into the park. It's very affordable. Parking is $10 if you... If you are an active duty military, parking is free. If you're 62 or older, parking is $5. Is there anything else you want to mention while we have you about the monument? <laughs> I, just... I highly recommend a visit of at least two hours. Okay. I think you'll find it's more than just taking a picture of the sculpture. You're going to find yourself drawn into what was it to drill? What was it to hang over the side of a cliff face that's 5,700 feet high and have a 40-pound jackhammer vibrating you for hours at a time? And there's a workers' museum that you can see amazing pictures of the workers on the mountain with videos and other things. So it's overall, it's really great. Maureen McGee-Ballinger, thank you so much for you're taking welcome. time, spending time with us. And it's an amazing place to be, and I'm sure you're really excited to work here every day. It is a fantastic place to work. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now it's time for our CE Hot Seat segment, which in today's episode, we're changing it up a bit. Instead of doing our typical Hot Seat segment, we're actually going to be talking with Lou Del Bianco, who's the grandson of the chief carver of Mount Rushmore, Luigi Del Bianco. But before we do that, I do want to mention our sponsor for today's episode, PPI. If you're preparing for the civil PE exam, you probably know that the Civil Engineering Reference Manual by Michael Lindeberg is the book to use. Michael Lindeberg is actually the founder and president of PPI, the leader in FE and PE exam prep. PPI has new prep courses available for the civil PE exam that offer complete coverage of not only the morning breath exam, but also your choice of afternoon depth exams. The course presents over 60 hours of new content and walks you through tons of exam-like practice problems. When you enroll in the live online prep course, PPI also includes on-demand lectures for free, so you can start studying while you wait for the course to begin. 
Through October 2017, PPI will be choosing two of our podcast listeners per month to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you enroll in this course. To enter the raffle, visit www.ppitopass.com forward slash civil prep. Again, that's www.ppi, the number two, pass forward slash civil prep. From there, you'll need to choose your course and check out. On the checkout page, enter the promo code prep and then complete your enrollment. Again, you need to enter the promo code PREP before completing your enrollment to qualify for the gift card. You'll be notified on the first of the month if you won the $100 gift card. I use PPI for my PE exam prep, so I feel confident in recommending that you check out this prep course. Plus, you could win $100. Good luck. For this segment of the episode, again, this is a special episode. I'm here in South Dakota at the Mount Rushmore Memorial, literally standing here staring up at it. And I have here for this segment a special guest, Lou Del Bianco. And the reason I'm here is because Lou's grandfather, Luigi, was officially named Chief Carver of Mount Rushmore just yesterday. And he was on CBS Sunday Morning this morning. It's been a thrill. I worked with Lou to publish his book about it, which you can check out at rushmorebook.com that tells the story. And we're not going to get too much into the story right now because I know this is our civil engineering podcast and we want to stay focused on the construction. But essentially, Lou spent the last 25 plus years getting his grandfather the recognition he deserved. And in that, Lou has learned a lot about the mountain and how it was constructed. And the one thing that I continue to find fascinating is how, and I'm looking up at it now, how the, the accuracy of these four faces are on such a big thing. So Lou, just talk briefly a little bit about the whole idea of pointing and how they get this on to look like this. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an expert on this subject, but because of all the reading I've done, uh, while researching and finding out about my grandfather's role, I do know that um, basically pointing is the system of transferring measurements from a model sculpture and transferring those measurements to a stone or marble piece. Your grandfather would be in a studio, right, with these smaller models? Yes. In fact, he would be in the studio with a smaller model of Rushmore where the faces are five feet tall instead of 60 feet. Right. So all the measurements had to be done in a ratio of 1 to 12 from 5 to 60. So it wasn't like, uh, you know, they were the exact same size. So basically what Borglum had to do was to create a pointing machine. Pointing is the name of the system by which they do these measurements. And so basically, if you can imagine all, all of you engineers out there, because I'm not an engineer, <laughs> I'm an artist with a little bit of an engineer's mind. Imagine a vertical pole sticking out of the top of one of the five-foot heads and out of that pole at the bottom of the head is a boom that sticks out horizontally and can swing and turn 180 degrees. Okay? Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And at the tip of this horizontal boom is a string. And at the bottom of that string is a plumb. And that machine enables the artist to take three measurements on the model. The measurement could be 180 degrees around the face. The distance how far out into the boom and then the third measurement is how far down to the plumb so if you want to take a pointing measurement on the tip of lincoln's nose on the model you would bring the plumb down to the tip of his nose and three measurements would be made the angle of 180 degrees where the plumb is how far out the plumb is on the horizontal boom and how far down the plumb is wow. and those three measurements make a point and what the artist does is he takes the he goes to the head the 60 foot head with a similar pointing machine that's 12 times bigger and takes those three measurements the angle 180 degrees the distance how far out and how far down 
and that gives them the idea of how far to, uh, to dig into the granite to remove it. And so you could imagine if you have a very undetailed sculpture, you're not going to have to make as many measured points because right. it's not as detailed. But when you're talking about Something human faces, like, you oh, can man. imagine the amount of points measured that they had to make, thousands and thousands and thousands. They just kept doing that. And obviously, the more they carved, the deeper those plums would get into the face. Yes. And that is my best way to explain. Well, I think that's you did great, and this is really truly just staring at it an engineering feat and artwork together combined. Absolutely, uh, to pull something like this off. And if you're as a civil engineer, I know that you would love this. You have to come. You have to visit this. You have to see it yourself. And there's lots of stuff here. You could visit the sculpture studio. You'll also be able to see now a plaque of Lou's grandfather, Luigi Del Bianco. <laughs> there's a plaque here officially designating him as the chief carver. And so it was a thrill to get to speak to him here about this. And it was really exciting. So we will post photos and some more information about the pointing and some of the other things you heard about in this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com. You're more than welcome to leave comments or questions there. And also, I highly recommend that you check out uh, Lou's book, RushmoreBook.com. If you like history, if you like engineering, if you like artwork, you're going to like the book and love the story. And with that, I wish you continued success. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I look forward to helping you be the best civil engineer you can be. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success.